Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Good day. My name is Kevin O'Neill. I'm the Senior Director of the Littler Learning Group, and I'm here today with Jennifer Yupa, a shareholder from Littler Mendelson's Dallas, Texas office. Good afternoon, Jennifer. Good afternoon, Kevin. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some new issues that are emerging in the context of the Me Too era within the investigations planning arena. And Jennifer and I actually have been out in the field, so to speak, of late conducting a fair amount of investigations trainings. And Jennifer's also been involved in conducting investigations themselves. So we've got a couple of different angles and mindsets to bring to the table as we look at this. But it's become a very, what we might consider, hot topic of late, partially because of the charged elements that exist within the Me Too and the Time's Up climate. And because a lot of those really do directly impact the needs and concerns that arise around investigations internally, uh, conducted both by internal members and external folks who you might outsource the investigation effort to. So that said, uh, let me kick it off, Jennifer, by throwing a question to you. What challenges are you seeing that clients are now having to address that might be different from concerns they have had to handle prior to the current climate? Kevin, there's been several. Uh, Some of the difficulties that have been created appear in our society to be this rush to judgment, which can be pretty much inconsistent with a well-planned and thorough investigation. What we're seeing out there is what we believe to be an immediate jump determination of those high-profile individuals in the entertainment, the news, government, and corporate worlds. But we need to be careful to not turn away from an effective investigation process, which allows the complainant that opportunity to fully articulate their concerns while providing the individuals accused of wrongdoing that fair opportunity to respond. Additionally, what I'm seeing is more allegations against individuals at the very top of organizations, which is obviously a very good thing because people are feeling much more empowered and believe that their voices will be heard. But as you know, that will also lead to a greater level of sensitivity around the process and the investigation. And lastly, in our social media world, where the allegations quickly go viral, organizations have to be doing some advanced planning to protect their brand while still treating employees fairly in the investigation context. Our HR groups need to be working very closely with their legal and public relations support teams to game plan how to deal with these issues and to avoid the potential adverse publicity that can be incredibly damaging to organizations. Being honest and transparent seems to be the most effective response. Yeah, if I may interject, uh, we're having this conversation during the same week as the the Roseanne sitcom debacle has been playing out in the news where she tweeted in the middle of the night some comments that have been labeled as racist, as most people know. And one of the comments that I saw as I've been reading a little bit about this that stuck in my mind is one writer who was tweeting his response to how ABC handled it was, somewhere at ABC they're opening the manila envelope with the emergency plan for, quote, the tweet. They knew this day would come. They knew they would have to be ready, unquote. In a sense, this emergency plan is what you're kind of referring to. Uh, Maybe that's a more dramatic reference than is needed, 
But the truth is, with the social media disclosures and, and now the embracing of that as a mechanism to get a complaint out there, there are kind of these potential middle-of-the-night disclosures that are coming with varying amounts of depth to them that organizations have to be prepared to respond to on behalf of uh, their internal and external stakeholders. Is that what you're seeing, Jennifer? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what what you need to do is literally sit down and pre-plan for these types of events and, and addressing the impact that social media can have on, on your operations uh, moving forward. Traditionally, when we've been thinking about or conducting training, particularly around investigations, the concepts of confidentiality and, you know, keeping things within the fold, within the need-to-know chain uh, have been really paramount. But suddenly there's this twist to that, which is be prepared because the public disclosure of some of this has such immediately damaging ramifications that you have to be potentially prepared to navigate around that and suddenly get some public disclosure response out <laughs> uh, rather than keep it as confidential as possible from the get-go. Is that causing some concern level or some kind of head-scratching on behalf of some of the clients you've been working with? It really has. It really turned some of these issues on their heads because, as you indicated, you know, we have really kept a, a tight uh, circle around these investigations, both internally and externally in the past. And depending upon your organization and the specific allegations that have been raised, you may have to work outside of that prior plan in order to show that transparency that the public seems to be desiring at this point, while still, again, ensuring the fairness of, of your employee base. I mean, these are workplace investigations, even if they involve high-profile individuals. It's interesting because while we've obviously always had the potential for anonymous complaints, in this context, we're not only are we having anonymous complaints, but we're having complaints that come in, you know, through a third-party source like a social media site. And there really is that need to know how to address and what to do to meet the expectations of your workforce, as well as potentially the expectations of the public and your clients and customers. So recognizing that when you have knowledge of a potential claim, you have an obligation as an employer to address that concern, even if it comes in from a, uh, you know, a less than traditional source. So we are seeing the need to conduct investigations based upon a hashtag MeToo without a great deal of information uh, that, that comes with that. And the need is out there to make certain that we are taking those types of complaints as seriously as a hotline complaint that we would have in, a, in our you know, prior context. Yeah, it seems like it has uh, created the need to be ready to look at the variation of what uh, social media complaint you might be dealing with and, and what is in or within that complaint. Uh, there are just different levels of, of disclosure that are coming. There are the totally anonymous complaints that just say something has happened. There's the next level of an anonymous complaint that says something happened and this person is the person who did it. Then there's the next level of anonymous complaint that says something happened, this person 
did it and here are some documents or here's some evidence that could back it up. Then there's the not-so-anonymous complaint that names the person, it names the company, it names some facts, and uh, maybe they suggest uh, enough to let you know who they are that are concerned about it. And all of these different levels, and there are more there than, than just those, probably require some different kind of calibrated responsiveness, but some responsiveness nonetheless, even if the complaint is just from a social media source and all it does is anonymously call out one high-level leader or high-profile leader, regardless of the fact that there's not more information attached to that, as you're suggesting, there's still a duty to respond that is going to be proportionate to the information that's contained in the complaint. Well, Kevin, you know, during the course of the training that you've been conducting with regard to investigations, as a result of these issues, are you seeing participants asking particular questions or needing to address specific skills in any way that's different than they did before? Yeah, I guess it, it, it definitely has sort of expanded the interviewing skill set is what I've seen in that as this comes out, there's, as the informational sources expand with social media and the amount of information around the whole dynamic has kind of exploded, there's a lot more awareness of what concerns can and should be addressed internally by complainants and potential complainants and by what you might call bystanders, right, people who are aware of things and, uh, and are maybe more likely to speak up on behalf of somebody. And because there's that more widened level of knowledge out there that when you're sitting in the interview seat, so to speak, you're more likely to confront people who may have a more, I don't know if I want to call it a confrontational uh, attitude, but they're certainly more informed than they may have been in the past and have maybe higher expectations than they may have had in the past about what their rights may be about questions where they can put the interviewer on the defensive and ask questions that make it very hard to respond and continue your investigation track. Questions like, so why haven't you handled this differently in the past? And why is the organization not handling this better? And things that suggest that they're now beginning to pick at uh, the organization's past, its history, its investigation process in and of itself. And what I'm seeing and hearing is that that really challenges the investigator. Don't ignore those questions, but don't make those questions now the centerpiece of your investigation effort or the time you put aside to, to deal with an individual uh, complainant or a witness. So that dynamic is proving pretty interesting that there's this new kind of emboldened voice that is actually showing up in the investigation process in, it, in itself that is requiring, again, as I said, an expansion of the skill sets of, uh, of the interviewers. And I've always said that having really solid investigation and particularly interview skills is an invaluable asset to an organization. And I think that's never been more true than is the case currently, that the, you know, the set of communication and interviewing skills and responsiveness responsibilities that your interviewer has is something that needs to be looked at more seriously than perhaps in the past and more as an opportunity in the past to really create frontline investigation efforts. 
Well, it, it tells us that a key component of this, is, as we all know, is choosing the right investigator. You know, recognizing that one size doesn't fit all, determine if your internal resources are sufficient to handle the complexity of the particular investigation, or if you do need to consider an external investigator to ensure both independence and the absence of bias. You need to have that trained professional who can ultimately serve as the witness in the event that you do end up in litigation. Uh, you know, certainly that is not often the case, but you want to be presenting with an, a, a witness who can best indicate how the company responded to the particular concerns and do so in a professional and unbiased manner. It allows you that opportunity to put your best foot forward. Yeah, I agree. And, and as you're talking uh, in the middle of this conversation, it's probably good just to kind of reset the foundation of what an effective investigation process really is all about. Stage one of the investigation is to make sure that there's a full complaint intake process and that it is it's included some of the things we've talked about, which is looked at the different levels of complaints, the different ways and forms complaints come in these days, if they've come in in social media and they've come in quickly or they've come in with varying levels of information, make sure that there's some sort of a, uh, you know, if nothing else, there's a group thought that is able to be vetted about what level of responsiveness we owe to this. So the stage one of an investigation has to be looked at uh, a little bit differently, has some new considerations in it, but still has to be the foundation of it. Are you fully taking in the complaint, understanding the complaint, understanding what it consists of, and understanding what your corresponding investigation responsibilities should be? Then we move into stage two, which is the planning. And the planning has shifted as well, I think, in the Me Too era, where the, you know, the basics of planning have always included you get your ducks in a row, right? Look at who you're going to talk to, what you're going to need to review, you know, what policies, procedures might be in play, what documents you're going to need to look at as you begin this effort and throughout the effort, what other forms of evidence might be there. But the thing that's also changing in that stage right now is the, some people call it the triage stage. Very simply put, it's often the you know, additional notification aspect of this stage where you have to consider whether there are other people that need to be informed or other issues that need to be looked at or considered. Stage three, really the most intricate of all stages in the investigation effort, is when the investigator actually sits down and conducts the investigation, which involves both uh, uh, in-depth document and evidence review and the continuation of that as you gather more of the same, but it's really in the interviewing and uh, the skill set involved in interviewing that there's just a, a large amount of skills involved and a large amount of facility involved in being able to navigate all of these different issues. The investigator has to be uh, nuanced and ready to handle all of those issues and continue and also remain that a neutral fact finder throughout so they don't put on what we often call the HR or the legal hat when they're in that spot, when they may feel cornered or they may feel, in a sense, the tide has turned in an investigation effort and they're on the defensive. And when you're in an organization that may have a, a 
or maybe building out a large team of investigators, you want to make sure that the people that you're putting out on the front lines are able to handle all of these uh, ever-changing and, uh, and more advanced skills and, and challenges that are going to confront the investigator in that, what we're calling the third stage, the interview process uh, itself. Then, of course, we lead to the final stages, which are going to be the pu pulling it all together, evaluating the evidence, evaluating credibility, making findings of fact, right? And then right. the final question is, where does that all go and how does it get all pulled together? And, and how does documentation play out in all of that, which probably could be the subject of a whole a separate series of, uh, of investigation-oriented podcasts. But just to kind of give the context, that's, you know, that's still the arc under which all of these new issues are beginning to present themselves, and they require kind of facile movement with the investigator, him or herself, to be able to bring these new dynamics into their you know, proverbial investigator uh, toolbox. And I, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with the idea that the investigator really has to have that level of confidence and, and, and oftentimes even gravitas to be able to effectively seek out the information that's necessary to make a credibility determination as well as a factual determination and be able to, you know, move with the evidence in order to uh, to have a f effective resolution. That being said, as an organization, you're also going to have to make a determination as to your expectations of the investigation. Is that investigator a fact finder and he or she leaves their role at that stage? Or are you also uh, requesting that the investigator provide some level of recommendation on uh, further action? And that's a determination that needs to be made in advance of the investigation so that everyone is speaking from the same page. And Kevin, that brings us to a point that is often a, a significant issue in these investigations is how prompt is prompt enough when we're conducting these investigations? Uh, yeah, a question that's coming up more and more these days. And, you know, that I'll give you the classic uh, lawyer's response, which is it depends, <laughs> right? The investigation starts really uh, when you're notifying individuals involved of the effort that is about to unfold, letting the complainant know that you receive their information, that you're on and looking into the information, and that you'll be talking to them soon is part of the investigation. So that's the kind of messaging that you want to be putting out sooner than later, within the first 12, 24, 48 hours, say, after a known complainant has come forward, you want to let them know that it has been received there's somebody on it, and that there's a process that is now in play. Whether that process can practically begin to be physically implemented in that same period of time is uh, not always likely, but that doesn't mean you can't respond quickly in that way to put the individuals on notice that, that the investigation effort is beginning. That said, you then do want to be doing whatever you can in that same quick period of time to put the pieces in place to begin the actual physical investigation effort, and that should be, you tell me, Jennifer, what do you think is the practical period of time in which 
that level of the investigation effort needs to be taking place. Well, I'm, I'm going to join you with that depends. Of, of course, uh, I will reiterate what you've just said about the initial communication piece. Leaving the complainant in a vacuum is really the most destructive thing that you can do, I think, during that interview process. So starting off and, and, and being very effective with your communication with the complainant is key. And then the process of planning takes time. It may actually take more time than the actual investigation itself and conducting that investigation with the witnesses and, and review of the documents. But uh, that time spent in the planning stage is probably the most important thing that you can do to make certain that you are hitting the points in advance but also recognizing the need to be able to pivot as needed. As issues change, as facts change along the way, an investigator that is too tied to his or her script is not as effective as one who can take the information that is shared with them and utilize it in an effective way to move forward to get to the information that leads to a factual resolution. So when you're doing the, these issues, uh, one of the other issues that, that comes up oftentimes is the implications of, of confidentiality and anti-retaliation. Obviously, always being cautious in promising complete confidentiality and a recognition that confidentiality should be maintained by the investigator within what we always refer to as that need-to-know circle. But uh, a commitment to complete confidentiality really does adversely impact the ability to effectively investigate. Yeah, it brings up, uh, we've been talking a lot about internal investigation approaches, and of course, that's just one side of the story when an organization's considering uh, their investigation effort and the appropriate level thereof. There's also obviously the option and the industry of external investigator resources coming in and conducting the investigation from that perspective, which is something that's readily available and quite regularly done and often uh, particularly important in an era such as now where there might be more high-level or high-profile kinds of disclosures involved. Uh, so this, a lot of what we're talking about also could apply uh, to the external investigation considerations and the skills and, and tools needed to be conducted there. But you know, overall, you know, it's, it's probably worth talking briefly about what considerations might trigger the difference between staying internal with an investigation team or using or considering using an external investigator. Uh, have you uh, come across some, some pretty good uh, trigger differentiators for when either of those might be the better call, Jennifer? I mean, the biggest issue is always a bias consideration. Will the investigator appear to have a bias uh, if they are internal and have been, you know, heavily involved with the individuals who they will be investigating, is in a reporting relationship below those who they will be investigating. You know, those are often significant trigger points. And as we've been expressing this afternoon, there's clearly the situation now where we're seeing claims being made against those who are at the highest levels of organizations. And in those instances, 
It is oftentimes the case that an external investigator just gives you that step that allows you to show a, a an unbiased uh, investigation that was not preordained. I, I think that uh, that is going to have both internal appeal to your workforce as well as uh, an, an external feeling that you have properly thought the, the the truth uh, in in this investigation, and that it that is not an attempt to to uh, whitewash the circumstances. Uh, we've seen several investigations in this uh, Me Too era that have been plagued by concerns that the investigation was not unbiased. So that is you know a critical criteria that must be assessed and bringing in an external investigator is oftentimes the best tool to address that that concern. It's also sometimes the best strategy when you have uh, somebody who might be in the higher echelon of your uh, your executive suite so to speak uh, and and you're wanting to make sure that they they get the level of seriousness that needs to be applied to how they participate in and cooperate in the organization. Sometimes, you know, you know, strength needs to respond to strength, and, and a, a strong presence of an outside investigator who comes in who will not be subject to any of the pre-existing, I hate to use words like dismissiveness, but, you know, the, the ability of somebody internal who's high up to discount the importance of an investigation for somebody who is lower than them in the uh, proverbial pecking order at an organization it is a consideration, somebody who is well-skilled and uh, and strong within those those skill sets may be the most appropriate person to put in front of your executives whenever they may be accused of these kind of concerns. And they may have the ability to really reinforce the the anti-retaliation component of the investigation. You know that is so key. Uh, you know, we're certainly seeing an increase in retaliation claims, both at the EEOC level and internally, and uh, we have to be adamant uh, about communicating our anti-retaliation policies, uh, both during the investigation and really throughout the employee's employment history. Yeah, and it also brings me back to a point you were you made before about, you know, what what are the parameters of your role? and often their expectation is going to be, I am a finder of fact, I will reach findings of fact based on the allegations before us. I will not make recommendations, right, which is something you noted earlier, unless you're, I'm being asked to or unless we've talked about the propriety of that. And the other issue that's coming up is whether or not they're even going to reach findings or a version of a conclusion about whether your internal policies have been violated. It's an interesting thing to think about, you know, do you want the investigator to reach findings based on whether a policy has been violated or not, not to mention whether or not they make recommendations about that, or do you want to limit the investigation simply to findings of fact that then when submitted to the next level for internal review, which is generally going to be a management decision-making team of sorts, that they will be able to put two and two together, look at the findings of fact, attach them to whether or not a policy has been violated, and then make meaningful and sustainable recommendations about actions to be taken.
And I think it reiterates the importance of pre-planning before the issues arise so that you know as an organization what type of process you plan to utilize and what works best for your organization because it isn't, again, a one-size-fits-all. Uh, it, it really does have to relate to your particular culture and organizational mix. So thinking through these issues in advance of uh, having to address them in the in the midst of an investigation is, is really key and certainly something that, that we are recommending of, of all employers. As we kind of wind down here, timing being what it is, any parting thoughts about this whole area of the slightly twisting and turning new environment that we're in and the context of how investigation planning may be changing along with that? Well, I, certainly what, what I'd like to, to, to leave the group with is, is that idea that putting the time and effort into your investigation process, making certain that you have the right resources on board to conduct these investigations, really do have a positive impact on your culture and on your bottom line. And we're seeing that time and time again with those organizations that have really put the thought into this process process, uh, that they're getting very positive results from their workforce that uh, I think will take them into the future, uh, this, this new future that we have that will certainly incorporate people raising concerns when they see them in their workplace. I couldn't agree more. I want to thank you for your time, Jennifer, as we sign off here. And I thank the group for listening in and hope this was of value to those who have stuck with us throughout the duration of this podcast, feel free to follow up with Jennifer Yupa or Kevin O'Neill, that's me, at Lidler Mendelson. If you have any follow-up specific questions, you can find our uh, emails connected to this podcast and, of course, on the Lidler website, and we're happy to uh, respond to any questions or concerns you may have. So thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you to all who've listened, and have a terrific day. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.